Let me begin by saying again how thankful my family and I continue to be for your kind prayers and thoughts on our regard. The homecoming at Morrison Creek last Sunday was a very well-received one, and certainly we're delighted to be back today here at Pippin. I do want to thank Brother Gary for the fine lesson delivered last Lord's Day morning. I know it was a great blessing in so many ways in many regards. As we continue our reading through the Word of God this year, we come today to a particular lesson I've entitled Receiving the Holy Spirit or Receiving the Holy Ghost. I would invite you for the next few moments to journey with me and give some thought to the matter of the Holy Spirit, the issues surrounding His reception, and the great blessing that is descriptive of your life and mine touching a subject like that one. Maybe it'd be fair to, as we've done a few times in the past, to begin by observing some of the following thoughts. We've now, following that pattern through the reading of the Scriptures, have now read 440 chapters. That brings us, as you can see, to 37% of the totality of the Word of God. At this point, consider the vastness of what we have read together. The history of the Old Testament, the Gospel accounts as they've been presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now in the midst of the book of Acts. I hope as we continue that journey, we'll continue to be encouraged and edified in the most remarkable ways. The remainder of the thoughts on that slide bring us to the Holy Spirit. It probably is fair to say that there is no single topic in all of the New Testament that seems to be the source of more controversy, more discussion, more misunderstanding than would be that of the Holy Spirit. What is His role? How does He do it? In what way does He bring it about? When does it take place? Are just a few of the questions that are often asked. As you and I come to the matter of receiving the Holy Spirit, you'll notice it really was a direct statement of Acts 8.17. Let's give some thought to what took place on that occasion and use it to describe the reception of the Holy Spirit. As you do that, some of those statements at the bottom... The Holy Spirit. Truly, it's a fantastic matter to give thought to the Godhead. The marvelous matter of God the Father. The impressive consideration of the second member of the Godhead, God in the form of the Son. And finally, God in the form of the Holy Spirit. Those three elements or members of the Godhead truly are fantastic and awesome in every regard. They are beings described in many ways in the Word of God, and we shall but touch in many ways the hem of the garment this morning. As you do that, let's cast the spotlight on the setting for the text before us. What was it that was occurring in Acts the 8th chapter? What led to that statement of verse 17? And as we reflect upon it, I believe we'll be in position to then discuss more thoroughly and fully that particular avenue itself. As you and I remember, back in Acts chapter 2, the blessed church of our Lord had begun. We remember on that day, Peter and the others stood up and for the first time in all of history preached with blessing the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preached the marvelous matter of His death, His burial, His resurrection. They proclaimed with no unclearness at all the fact that there is the avenue of His ascension to glory and the fact that the kingdom of God is ready to begin. As they made that proclamation that day, about 3,000 were troubled. They were pricked in their heart, it tells us in Acts 8, 37. And they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
We remember in verse number 38, Peter told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. These very ones who 50 days earlier had had a part in putting to death Jesus, had a part in putting to death the very Messiah, the Son of God, they had opportunity to have that sin forgiven and wiped away. We notice in verse number 47 of that same chapter, the church had begun. For it says, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. Now, as often as the Old Testament had looked forward to that establishment, in greatness it had begun. In those chapters that follow, in chapter 3, we have Peter's preaching on that marvelous matter of Solomon's porch. In chapters 4 and 5, Peter and John and their activities, we might now say that a persecution, though, began to arise, prompted in part by what fell in regard to Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, we have a remarkable sermon. It was a lesson preached and proclaimed by none other than Stephen. He, in fact, cut to the heart those that were his listeners. He told them about how that the Israelites had so often rejected God, though God had made plans and avenues for their deliverance, they had so often been rebellious. Finally, in verses 51 and following of that chapter, he made reference to them, and it says in those verses that they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on him with their teeth. They picked up rocks and stoned him to death. And all he did was try to preach God's truth to them. And that he did, but they weren't willing listeners, were they? You'll notice that a gentleman named Saul held the clothes of those that stoned him. Saul will, of course, be the major player of a human standpoint, at least, in the rest of the New Testament. It might be fair to say, as we start chapter 8, that there was a great persecution that had began to arise. After the stoning of Stephen, after the death of that great servant of the Lord, we remember that in verses 1 to 4 of Acts chapter 8, this persecution was such that disciples in the Jerusalem area were scattered abroad. Persecution was so intense that they found it difficult to remain in that city. Verse number 4 says, And they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. One thing that they didn't leave behind was the very object that brought about the persecution in the first place. Isn't that impressive? Isn't that overwhelming in light of their dedication and their devotion? Beginning in verse number 5 of Acts 8, we have a record about the efforts and the preaching of a gentleman named Philip. Philip came down to Samaria, which was a city, of course, located in the Palestinian area. As he came to that location and preached Jesus, Acts 8 verses 5 and following, we find that there was a ready reception there were many in Samaria who were excited about the message and the thought. As they gave great heed to what Philip preached, we noticed that there was a powerful observation. They watched Philip healing people. They watched him also casting out some unclean spirits. And you'll notice verse 12 summarizes much of it like this. And when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The natural reaction, the powerful response when they believed was necessarily the proper baptism. It's not really easy to separate at all belief on the one hand and baptism on the other. 
although mankind has so often tried to drive a wedge between them, the book of Acts presents them as a conjoined union. You and I might be impressed then to observe what happened with regard to Philip's preaching. Verse 12, the great success that he had, and notice even a sorcerer named Simon was so impressed by it, he too was baptized. He too became a member of the body of Christ. You'll notice as you arrive at the bottom of that slide, this gentleman Simon, he had in fact bewitched the people, and even they had stated that he was the power of God. I might ask you to notice in the verses that follow verse 12, after the church in Jerusalem learned about the success of Philip's preaching, after they learned of what was transpiring in Samaria, the text very interestingly says in verse number 14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. That church in Jerusalem involved itself in this mission effort, if you please. They sent Peter and John to Samaria so that upon their coming, they in fact could both pray and lay their hands on those converts in Samaria. And in so doing, they might then receive the Holy Spirit. It is interesting, isn't it, in verse 16, that at that point, up until that time, despite the fact that they had been baptized, they had not received the Holy Spirit. Despite the fact that until that time they had been scripturally baptized and were thus members of the body of Christ, they had not received the Holy Spirit. It might be that that prompts us perhaps to this next slide. You remember with me, that as the verses proceed onward from this point, Simon tried to purchase the power to impart that Holy Spirit. Peter, of course, confronted him, accused him of the nature of the sin that had engulfed his heart, and in so doing, he was urged to repent and to pray. I might suggest that as we think about all of that, Perhaps this word of review, this word of summary might well be in order. We have then encountered the following consideration. These individuals, due to the preaching of Philip, had obeyed the gospel. Verses 15 and 16. It was such that they had previously been baptized into Jesus. However, the text is clear that they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that Peter and John were thus sent from, again, that church in Jerusalem. And when they came, they not only prayed, but laid their hands on them. And then verse 17 affirms that they received the Holy Spirit. As we reflect upon that passage, might I suggest that it has much to say about the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Let's develop the thought by perhaps making note of the following. There is a fair amount of discussion, isn't there, about the nature of receiving the Holy Spirit. I'd like to read to you a quotation, if I might. It reads as follows. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a term used to describe a movement of the Spirit upon or within a believer, usually sometime after the person is saved. That's a rather prevalent or common view in the world in which we live. 
that a person by some means is saved and then at some point thereafter he or she is moved by the Holy Spirit. Consider another quotation. We need to know first of all that Christians receive the Spirit upon their conversion and in this sense all Christians have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, an authority is making these statements. He's not right, I might add, but he's making these statements. Consider yet another one. We can clearly see that the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit is used in the Bible, but we do not find a clear teaching in the Bible of what the phrase means. Nevertheless, we can conclude that when a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, he has the power bestowed upon him of the Holy Spirit. And I'll pause at that point. A number of statements additionally might be made, but you and I live in an age in which there seems to be so many questions. Let's revisit this text in Acts chapter 8 for at least the next little while. As we do that, let us focus our efforts upon the thought of the Holy Spirit, striving to appreciate what is stated here and also, of course, what other passages help us to understand as well. The Holy Spirit is arguably a central matter in the entirety of the book of Acts. In fact, it might be argued He is the central figure in the book of Acts. Well, over 40 times direct reference is made to Him in this book alone, by far more than any other New Testament book. As often as we think about the life of Christ in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's as if we find in the book of Acts the efforts, the labors, the work of the Holy Spirit. As we think about the Holy Spirit and the appreciation of Him in this text before us, one of the first matters we might do is begin even back in chapter number 1 where Jesus Himself was speaking in Acts 1 verses 5 through 8. He made reference on that occasion, did He not, to the very baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who was He speaking to on that occasion? Who did the Lord say would be the recipient of this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Jesus is very clear. He is assembled and gathered with those that are the apostles. At that point there were eleven of them because Judas had already committed suicide. We find as Jesus spoke to the eleven, He to them said that you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days hence. It might be fair then to say, would it not, that as Jesus made reference to this baptism of the Holy Spirit, He likened it, affirmed it, related it directly to an experience those apostles would receive. It wasn't promised to a general believer you and I might remember that back in Matthew 3, verses 9 through 11, Jesus also on that occasion had made reference to this baptism of the Holy Spirit and yet again had affirmed the nature that it would not be something that general believers would receive. You and I noticed a moment ago that a gentleman had made statement that every baptized believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit. He is wrong on that point. We notice Jesus only promised it to those that were the apostles. Perhaps finally you might appreciate that there was a dramatic fulfillment of this. One chapter later from that statement by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, we arrive at Acts chapter 2 and the first four verses of that chapter describe the apostles, those that were especially chosen servants and followers of the Lord, those that were the sent out ones. They were the ones described in verses like this. 
And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, who's the they? The apostles, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. You'll notice that the they has reference to those apostles. And as they were overwhelmed by that Holy Spirit, they were able to speak in tongues and languages with utterances they'd never learned. And as they did that, we find that opening saga of the great preaching of the gospel that Pentecost day. It might be interesting for us to recollect even further. There is only one other occurrence in all of the scriptures in which something like that transpired. Only one. It occurred in Acts chapter 10, eight chapters later. There you may remember it had to do with the household of Cornelius. As that group of Gentiles was gathered and Peter was in fact brought to preach to them, the very Holy Spirit prompted Peter to preach and to appreciate the fact that they were not unclean as he had previously thought, but that they too were recipients of the gospel message. And that's the only two times in all the Bible we find that phraseology. Notice again, it was specifically for those occurrences and not to general believers. There's not a person on earth today baptized in the Holy Spirit. In fact, as we think about the application of that thought, isn't it interesting that in Acts chapter 8, we have some dramatic understanding set before us. Look how we perhaps can move further. The nature of then interpreting passages like Acts 2.38, a verse like that one has often been a matter of intense questioning by perhaps many of us. That was one to which we alluded just a moment ago. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then the last part of the verse, And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What is that gift of the Holy Ghost? The very last statement mentioned in that verse, What is that gift to which reference is made in that passage? That is, in fact, one to which you and I can perhaps use Acts 8 to assist us, to help us. As we do that, I would invite you to close that slide by looking at another example in Acts. And then after mentioning it, we will revisit and try to tie all these things together. In Acts chapter 19, we have on that occasion a statement, a reference to 12 men. They were in the city of Ephesus. They had previously been baptized under the baptism of John the Baptist. When Paul came to that area, he asked them a simple question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? They responded in a way that appeared to surprise Paul. They said, we haven't even heard whether there be such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And he knew immediately at that point and he proceeded to baptize them in the name of Jesus. That is, according to the baptism that our Lord Himself authorized... And after that, you'll notice, it says, He laid His hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So there's another example in which someone was baptized, and thus a member of the Lord's body, but they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit. It was not until the laying on of Paul's hands on that occasion that that Holy Spirit was received, wasn't it? Perhaps all of those things, taken in convergence, bring us to this next slide. It is the same scenario, the situation, isn't it, of these Samaritans in Acts the 8th chapter. 
taking all those things together, these passages do speak much about receiving the Holy Spirit. And what taking together have we appreciated relative to all of them? Here are some thoughts. First of all, that gift of the Holy Spirit discussed in Acts 2.38. In what way might you and I appreciate the forcefulness of that phrase? It might do us well to make one initial comment. It is frequently appreciated that that gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit itself. But might we take note, the language doesn't demand that. For instance, if a statement was to be made that Randy is giving Denise a gift, that doesn't mean that I'm giving myself. It might be a ring. It might be some other present. But the gift of the Holy Spirit need not necessarily be the Spirit Himself. The language wouldn't demand that in any sense of the word. What was being promised in Acts 2.38? Was it the Spirit that was being promised or some gift due to or by the Spirit? Surely we would appreciate the fact that the former is not required. As you and I think about the matter of that passage, maybe this text in Acts 8 as well as Acts 19 could help us or assist us in understanding that point more clearly. In fact, you'll notice that, in fact, the Bible does help us significantly. In Acts 10.45, a passage to which I would turn your attention, we've already learned earlier that the appreciation that took place in Acts chapter 2, that is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the understanding that went with those apostles first is only repeated one other time. It was with Cornelius. And that gift of the Holy Spirit is used in the Acts 10 passage. And specifically, what did it refer to? It referred to miraculous capabilities. The ability to speak in tongues, the ability to, the ability to prophesy. And thus, when that phrase, gift of the Holy Spirit, was used in Acts 10, it specifically had reference, did it not, to the miraculous capability if we allow the Bible then to be its best commentary, then what should be the proper interpretation taken in the Acts 2 passage? When it says, Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that was written in an age and in a time in which there was still the operation of the Holy Spirit directly by way of miraculous matters. It would seem that that's the absolute thrust of what was presented then. Let's build that thought perhaps even more clearly, if we might. Hold your finger in that position, if you would, and revisit Mark 16 with me. The very words of Jesus Himself. In Mark chapter 16, we have so often encountered that blessed passage that reminds us of the duty that you and I have, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now verse 16 is so often etched in our mind that we think with power about its demands. Belief and baptism. However, notice what happens in verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if, any, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. 
there's the statement about belief and baptism immediately followed by the promise from the Lord Himself that these that are His followers would be able to do miraculous things. Look back to Acts 2.38. There's the requirement of belief, in this case stated in terms of repentance and baptism, followed by immediately this statement of miraculous character, the gift of the Holy Spirit. You and I should then interpret that latter part of Acts 2.38 in the absolute way of reminding us on the basis upon which it rests. It was written in a day when those miraculous capabilities were very much still in existence. It might be fair in light of that to come to another passage that seems to shed some light on that appreciation. Look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 1. If you and I take note of this Roman congregation, the church in Rome was a congregation that had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 6, Paul said they'd been baptized. Baptism is a burial. They had submitted to it, and as such, their sins were washed away. They were members of the body of Christ. But isn't it interesting, in chapter 1, Paul said his hope was, in verse 11, to come to them so that they might receive or have imparted to them the Holy Spirit. Again, they'd been believers and they'd been baptized, but they hadn't received that Holy Spirit yet. Why did Paul have to come? It was true, wasn't it, that not just anyone could impart that Holy Spirit. Simon couldn't buy it. It had to be an apostle in the laying on of his hands. Maybe this last slide puts all of that in perspective. I would invite you to consider again what took place. In this first century era, we've now seen three occasions when a person submitted to baptism became a Christian, borrowing that wonderful name in Acts 11 verse 26. But yet, to that point, they hadn't received this Holy Spirit because no apostle was there to lay hands on him or her. We noticed it happened in Rome. It happened there in Ephesus in Acts 19. It happened here in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. The receiving of the Holy Spirit wasn't automatic at one's baptism, was it? It required an additional laying on of the hands of an apostle. No wonder in light of that we can perhaps see that there continues to be a great deal of confusion relative to that. But today, may we take note, there are no living apostles. There is no one who fulfills that office and hence can lay on hands and impart the Holy Spirit this way. No wonder then, no one can receive the Holy Spirit like that today. It has long since passed into history, hasn't it? That does lead, leave only one final question. What about passages that speak about an indwelling of the Holy Spirit? What should be said about that? After all, there are some verses that speak as if there is some measure or means by which the Holy Spirit indwells Christians like you and me, apart from any miraculous measure. What do those passages assert? Let's look at a few of them in the remaining time of our lesson this morning. In Acts 5 verse 32, you notice on that occasion, not too many chapters prior to our discussion this morning, it says, And we are His witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. A statement made that the Holy Spirit given 
to those that obey Him. What about another example? In Romans 5, verse number 5, in the midst of the Roman letter, Paul again makes the statement that reads like this, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Perhaps finally, you might notice 2 Timothy 1.14 where the explicit phrase dwelleth in us is made relative to the Holy Spirit. Let me pause and then ask the question. If it's the case that these miraculous capabilities, this receiving of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands of an apostle, if that isn't possible today, what should be said about what happens at the time of one's baptism? Is there a reception of the Holy Spirit? If so, in what way? How does the Bible describe it? What does the Holy Scriptures have to say about that? Well, perhaps, may we say this. We know very well that there is the sweet call of the gospel as it is ushered forth in 2 Thessalonians 1.14. Anytime a person is baptized into Christ, he or she has answered the call of the gospel. And that call is, of course, issued forth and set forth to us in remarkably simple language. You'll notice, though, that that call leads us to appreciate that it's the Spirit that, of course, has authored these words more than once. The Holy Spirit, you and I are reminded, is the one that directed and superintended the writing of the words of Scripture. Didn't Jesus Himself say in John 16, 13, the Spirit would lead those apostles and those inspired writers into all truth? And wasn't it true that we read specifically in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, about that this Word was guided and written by the Spirit as He led those writers to write it? With all that in mind, might we now ask, those verses that we just read, Acts 5:32. You'll notice the context there was again Peter and John, and they themselves were apostles, and they themselves then had miraculous capability. It wouldn't be fair to make much conclusion about non-miraculous matters based on that one. What about that Romans 5.5 5 passage? There again it says about that Holy Ghost given unto us or in whose being we share. It seems to me that the following conclusions taking all of these verses together are the fair summaries of statements. When you and I are baptized into Christ, when we obey the gospel, we are following the direction of the Spirit. It is that Spirit that has prompted, invited, called, and led us to that location. He didn't do it by any miraculous means. He did it by the inspired words that He had written. As you and I respond to it, we, by overwhelming dedication, do so with a desire to be right with God, which includes the Spirit. And that now leads us to observe. There seems to be no direct statement anywhere about an influence of the Spirit separate and apart from the Word. No reference seems to include or demand that in any sense of the Word. When you and I live the Christian life day by day, we are led by the Spirit because we follow what the Spirit has written. It's not that He acts on my heart apart from this Word. It's not that He says or speaks or in some way moves or compels you or me apart from this Word. 
the only information we have of what godliness is, is what the Spirit has written. We have not one scintilla more of information than that. God is no respecter of persons, Romans 2.11. And as such, all of us have exactly the same appreciation of what that Spirit has made possible. And there are a selected few, of course, who have obeyed it. As they are led day by day by the Spirit, indeed they are blessed because of the promises and rewards promised in the Word of God. When one gives thought to receiving the Holy Spirit, maybe those latter thoughts then summarize this statement so far and point us to this statement of conclusion as well. The Holy Spirit is a dramatic subject of the New Testament. He, in fact, is a powerful and vivid force, but it's because He is a personality, a person. As far as receiving the Holy Spirit, you and I recognize there are no apostles today, no possibility of laying on of an apostle's hands. And yet, as we have the finest product that the Spirit has ever set forth, it is this Word of God. Perfect in every way, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Appreciative of that which will make one prepared for eternal life. 2 Peter 1, 3 still says, All things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed. He said all things. Here then is the way in which you and I receive the leading influence of the Spirit. We obey what the Spirit has told us. We allow it to dwell within us as we study and read it. And as we apply it, we then are led by that Spirit. This very day, there may be one or more in this audience that has never accepted that call. You've never followed it yet. This would be the perfect time to do so. There's a host of individuals here and the angels in heaven ready to celebrate with you and rejoice today. If you've never been baptized into Jesus, why not today? In that baptism, your sins are washed away. You're added to the church. You are then given the name Christian that you can wear. And as you proceed faithfully through life, the end result is a home in heaven. If you haven't attended to that need in your life today, realize that call includes the following. Hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God and do so with all of your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as a Son of God and then be baptized. If you have attended to that, but you have fallen astray, perhaps you have begun to be misled by various and sundry claims of individual workings of the Spirit, don't fall prey to that kind of thinking, but realize that the Spirit's production of the Holy Word is the final matter and say, if you need to come back to your first love this very day, today again would be the perfect day. We'd be delighted to pray with you and for you just as was done for Simon there in Acts 8. If we could help you today, won't you come? All together we stand and while we sing.